Thank you for coming to the strip for the show today. No, I, I believe we're going to have a good time. So uh, we had a great time in North Carolina. It was a time of um, really just kind of uh, learning more and uh, experiencing God in just, in just new ways and deeper ways. And so we brought a small handful of people who are interested in going. And I'll just say this. It's open to others. Uh, you do need a pastoral endorsement. Um, but if you're interested in going, you could let us know. They usually have these like um, uh, once or twice a year. Uh, and so they're not very common. So when one happens and you are interested and you want to go, do let us know. We'll pray with you about attending. But it was a great time. Those of us who did go uh, really experienced God again, like I said, in just a brand new way. And so uh, we came back refreshed. It was pretty intense. Uh, it was back-to-back meetings. Uh, but there was grace. And so we enjoyed ourselves. But I'm glad to be back here in the mild heat, I know that's crazy, but we've been kind of hovering just a little bit over 100, right? And it seems like the heat is shifting eastward. So we were in North Carolina. It was hot and it was muggy. And we went to take pictures at Duke Gardens at, at the university. Beautiful place, but we came back drenched. You would have thought we ran a marathon, uh, but we did not. Uh, and so we were, we were happy to be back here home where God has called us here in Las Vegas. So how many love your city, Las Vegas? Okay, hey, I'll take that underwhelming response. Yeah, all right, okay. (laughs) All three of you, yeah. (laughs) All right, well, I hear you guys have been having a good time here. We're continuing our series in the book of Acts. Let's see, uh, maybe you can uh, bring my mic down just a little bit, guys. Can we give a hand to the media and the sound guys in the back? For always making us sound good. That is perfect right there, so... um, as I was preparing for this message, um, I, I was remembering when I was a kid, uh, I was in elementary school. We were stationed in Cheyenne, Wyoming at a place called Warren Air Force Base. I know you guys have never heard of that, but uh, it's part of my childhood. Um, because we were kind of way up north-ish in the middle, uh, middle part of that co- uh, the country, uh, we were about four hours away from Mount Rushmore. Anybody been to Mount Rushmore before? Yeah, South Dakota. Uh, beautiful country up there, so we made the drive. Uh, we went up there and saw that. And then uh, in the same area is um, some caves. They call them Black Hill Caverns. Uh, me and my sister were talking about this, trying to re- remember our, our childhood, and we, we think that was the, those were the particular caves. But I remember being in these caves, and um, they would cr- kind of corral us all into this one particular room. And uh, then they cut out the lights. And I never knew that darkness can be so heavy (laughs) and so thick. And I can imagine if somebody had night vision back then, I'm sure maybe it didn't exist, but they cut the lights off and I'm sure our, our eyes were just, you know. And it's crazy because as dark as it was, even though I mentally knew my family was near me, it's almost as if they had disappeared. And so the darkness was smothering. And then I remember being in the caves and, you know, telling the story. There was a, uh, a guy who kind of explored the caves, and he kind of mapped everything out. He had since passed away. Uh, we went through all the history and saw all the neat things and the, the, the different um, types of rocks and all that. But I remember coming back out of the caves after being in that darkness for so long with only lights in certain places, mostly along the path that you're walking, But I remember coming out of the caves and back into the 
general area where people enter. And you can imagine going from something that dark into sunlight, just how blaring and blinding the light was. As soon as we get out, we're like, you know, man, it's just, you know, so sometimes that happens just in our house, right? With the Vegas sun, we don't have many clouds. Sometimes you just go outside and you're like, oh man, it's the, you know, the blinding light, right? And so I've entitled my message today, uh, Disrupting the Darkness. If I could have added a subtitle, it would have been this, Paul's encounter with the light, or should we say Saul? Just a quick history lesson. Um, A lot of people think that Saul, who was a persecutor of Christians, we're going to get into this, they think his name changed to Paul after his conversion, and actually it did not. He had two names. It was very common for people in the Bible to have two names, Simon Peter, right? And so, um, and so, Paul grew up as a Roman citizen, uh, and so, but he was Jewish. So he had a Jewish name, and he had a, a Gentile name. And so, just so you know, I don't know why Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, who we think wrote the book of Acts, we don't know why he decided to switch names. Uh, I think it was in chapter 9, I think, is when he started. Um, don't quote me on that. You can go back and look. Um, but we're going to look at this story of Saul's conversion, And then we're going to pull some nuggets out of this and see how this applies to our life. As we're going through this series in the book of Acts, I can't help but to ask myself, what was different about the church back then? The book of Acts is a history of the church, uh, and it is an exclamation mark about the Holy Spirit, who is the agent here that we get to experience God with. Jesus physically is back in heaven. Right? He's, the Bible says he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. We get that, right? But he said, it's better that I go so that I can send the helper. If you were to study that word, the paraclete, that word, that word is um, about as underwhelming as the response we got this morning when we were excited about our city. Right? And so if you were to study that, it says it's the helper, he's the counselor, um, he's the, you know, um, the guide, the guide, you know, the guidance, he's the, the, the force, he's all this stuff. And so that word paraclete, really you can't feel that word enough. Any definition that you come up with falls terribly short to what the Holy Spirit really is to us. So Jesus says, I physically have to leave so that I can send this guy, the Holy Spirit, to be with you. And through him, you're going to experience me. Make sense? So this is the book of Acts. This is where we are. The history, the birth of the church after Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection He goes to heaven, and now we see what church is supposed to look like. So as I'm studying this, I can't help but to look and and kind of compare. Um, You know, that's that's just the pastor of me that that does this. So we're going to talk about this guy named Saul, and we're going to read about him. Um, And so I'm going to give you the book, or the chapter that we're going to be in, Acts chapter 9. So get ready if you have a Bible, or if you have a device that you're going to be reading from. We're going to read one of, mo- one of the most amazing conversion stories that you will ever hear. And I'll say this, there may never ever be another Paul. There may never ever be anybody who experiences the Holy Spirit and, and God in, in this way. Um, but I believe there are some parallels that we can take away from it. So I want to start off by reading three verses. This story of Paul, when he uh, comes into his encounter with Jesus, And then it goes through the story to the point where he is now 
uh, converted, and then he is uh, entering into his ministry. We're going to look at the beginning of that, and then the end of that, and then we're going to fill in the blanks in between. So Acts chapter 9, verse 1 and 2 says this, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here's Saul, who is a persecutor of Christians. He is responsible for the death of Stephen, who we studied, uh, I don't know, two weeks ago. Um, and the Bible tells us that Paul was directly responsible for his death. So this is the guy we're dealing with. We're starting the story right there. This guy is still looking for Christians. He's still going into homes. He's still trying to drag them out, put them into prison so that you can imagine what he's going to do from there. And then we fast forward to the back end of this story. In verse 31 of chapter 9, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The church multiplied and Saul had something to do with this. So looking at the contrast of where Saul was as a persecutor and a murderer of Christians to now somebody who helped the church now find peace. This happened in a very short time. And so what happened in between? That's what we're going to look at today. So elbow somebody next to you, point to somebody and say, hey, pay attention. This is going to be good. Okay. Some people are like, <laughs> whatever he said. All right. So in the beginning, there's intense persecution from top leaders. They're approving of this persecution, drawing people out, imprisoning them. 30 verses later, we see the church is at peace. Now I want to jump into uh, ver uh, verse 3. Now we're getting into the, to the meat of this. The story tells us there were three things Saul experienced that led to a permanent change in his life. And even as we're talking about a permanent change in Paul's life, let's study this and let's see where this can apply to us. If Saul can be changed by an encounter with God, then I believe that we can also. Amen? Amen. So verse 3 says this, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Now that's significant. Anytime Jesus repeats something, it's important. Especially if it's a person. Martha, Martha. You might have heard that before. So persecute me. Verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Let me just say this. As a follower of Christ, you cannot follow him alone. It doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. God called us to be in community. There's something called the, um, the assembly of his body that Jesus loves, that the Holy Spirit loves. So when we come together like this on a Sunday, that is on purpose. God loves that. And there's an expression that can only come from his body being together and worshiping. By the way, thank you for the awesome worship. Um, you know what makes great worship is great worshipers. And so does it doesn't matter if we have drums or don't have drums, which I hope next week. 
We don't have drums next week. Okay. Maybe the week after. No, we don't. Okay. Any drummers in the house? I'm just kidding. Maybe Cajon. I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out. But it doesn't matter. Even though we have a skeleton crew up here, it's the worship that comes from there that God is pleased with. Okay? We lead worship, and we go to the throne of God, and we hope that you follow with us. That's, that's our job when we're up here. So anyway, but thank you. There was, uh, you know, um, we enjoy worship here. So, uh, And then we will have our... Um, our A-team a back in, 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 in step next week, so it's going to be good. All right, so back to what I'm saying before I rabbit trailed. The first thing Paul experienced in this story was a confrontation. Say confrontation. Confrontation. So God confronts Saul with this blinding study, that word. It's actually a manifestation of God. It's not just a, a, a beam. It's not just a, a glare that he encountered. You know, we, we go and we cover our face. It's actually a manifestation, the Bible says. And there was an impartation when Jesus showed up in the form of the light, and that's what knocked Saul down. By the way, you might see illustrations and pictures of this story of Saul falling off of a horse. The Bible never mentions a horse, okay? So I don't know if you've ever told this story and you mentioned a horse. You could be wrong. I'm not saying you are. But it says that he falls to the ground. He hears his name twice. He sees the light, and he can't see. He's blinded. He doesn't eat or drink for three days. And so this was more than a confrontation. This was a confrontation that brought divine disruption. How many of you, when you finally surrendered to Christ and you gave him your life, you said, yes, I will follow you. How many realize he just disrupted your life and everything that you had planned? You realize that? And now here's Paul, and he's experiencing the same thing. And all throughout the Bible, there is a well-established pattern of God disrupting people. We're going to get into this so we can understand this. God's not here just to, to, to rain on your party. He's not here to, to, to you know, throw curveballs so you can miss and trip and you know, stumble through life. That's not his goal here. His goal is always redemptive. He cares about your best more than we do. More than we care about ourselves. And so he disrupted, he dispelled Adam and Eve in the garden after they had sinned. You know, the, the universal problem in this whole entire earth that everybody has to deal with, including all the different religions, is this thing called sin. How is that handled? If we can handle sin, then we can handle Everything else. And God made a way. So anytime there was sin in the camp, God would bring disruption. Not because, if you were like me, I grew up thinking God was this judge with a gun that had lightning in it. So he could just wait until, oh, he's about to slip. I, I see him and he's just waiting, for, waiting to punish me. Anybody ever felt God was that way? And we think that's what it is, but it's not. It's more redemptive than that. God's not looking to shoot you every time you sin, but he's looking to disrupt the sin because so, on the other side, there's something so much better. So he quarantined Noah and his family in the ark when the rest of the world was going crazy and then there was this flood that was a disruption. He confused the languages of the building of the Tower of Babel. Remember, they said, we're going to build a tower, we're going to reach God, 
And God said, you know what? There's nothing that can, cannot be done when men get together and agree in unity. And so to, to disrupt that, he created languages and nationalities, and we don't have time to get into all that, but you might remember the story. He confused the languages. He scattered them geographically. Um, and then he disrupted Egypt by sending severe plagues that destroyed the nation. You guys remember, might remember that. Afterwards, his people were expelled. You might think, man, God, you did all that only to lead your people out of slavery and into a desert where there's nothing? It's a disruption, a divine disruption. And God doesn't confront us because he wants to square off. He doesn't confront us because he wants to get even. He confronts us because he wants what's best for us. So usually disruption has a negative connotation, but not to God. God says, when I interrupt, it's because I'm about to bring something better. And he always gives us a choice. That's called love. When you give choice, it's because God loves you. He'll never force you or make you or any of that. In 2019, Sony Pictures released a movie called Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Anybody seen that movie with Tom Hanks? It's based on a true story. Um, I can remember, I'm kind of dating myself now as a kid, um, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. You guys might remember that. Now, it wasn't one of my favorite shows, but you know, as I was always flipping channels looking for cartoons, I would always stumble upon Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It wasn't exciting. It was the most monotonous thing I've ever heard. But I always stopped. And I always watched. And he's like, yeah, and Mr. McNeely, he's kind of come over. And he was just so therapeutic. I don't know. And so I'd sit there and I'd watch, you know. And, and so, but there was something about him. So Tom Hanks portrays a wonderful Presbyterian minister named Fred Rogers. You guys didn't know he was a minister. The story, I don't know if the movie tells you that. But it's a story of kindness, triumphing over cynicism. The movie wasn't about his ministry. Like I said, it was about the impact that he had on people. His compassion, his sensitivity, his presence with people all helped to create a disruption in the way people think about life. How they relate to one another, how they connect with one another. Eventually, Mr. Robinson would win over uh, in the movie, and based on the story, this cynical journalist who was assigned to profile him and to cover him. And so this hotshot journalist, you know, who just had this bad outlook towards life, is influenced by Mr. Rogers, and they become best friends. So regarding the movie, here's what one critic says about this, this story. After watching the movie, he says, many a movie will make you laugh or make you cry or make you think, but very few make you want to be a better person. And here's the thing. As the crowded movie theater let out, the sense of disruption was palpable. Everyone was so polite getting out of the parking lot, speaking to each other, smiling, you know, sharing life in such a way that contrasts so sharply to our current culture. And we had all experienced a disruption, the, the, the article says. They had a disruption in their selfishness, in their often callousness, and in their indifferent way 
of living. Indifferent is, a, is an interesting word. If you ever want to be worried about somebody, when you find that they're indifferent, that's the time you worry. At least when they're upset at you, at least you know, okay, they care about me enough to be mad, right? But when they start going, I don't care what you do. That's indifferent. That's when you go, ooh, <laughs> something's really wrong. And so in our world, a lot of people can be indifferent about a lot of the things that are going on. And so this movie and Mr. Rogers brought a disruption uh, because of his background being a minister and being godly. And so the movie actually affected people like that. And so God wants to bring a disruption in our life so that we can influence people the same. Proverbs 14.12 says this. Because if you might be wondering, why did God confront Saul? You know, we know that, you know, he was one of the most, uh, you know, uh, premier people in the New Testament. His ministry, he, even though he was Jewish, when you think about the disciples, they were all Jewish. And when they were spreading the word, they were spreading the word to other Jewish people. They were very, uh, they were very isolated, uh, uh, exclusive group, if that makes sense. And in a lot of ways, uh, I just I was uh, I was had the privilege of visiting Israel. Um, I don't know, a year half year and a half ago maybe, and and I sense that that's still the case. It's still a very exclusive group. And so when Jesus said, "Go into all the world and make disciples of all men," the way the uh, the disciples would have interpreted that was go into all the Jewish world and preach the gospel. And forget about everybody else. And so Paul was the first one to show up and go, yo, there's a whole other world out here who doesn't know Jesus and they need to hear. And so he's responsible for that. So we know that God had a plan for Paul. And Paul, as he was persecuting and killing and prisoning people, you realize he thought he was right. He thought he was doing God a favor in doing this. Proverbs 14, 12 says, uh, says this. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Divine disruption is the very thing we most need in order for God to bring about his plans for our lives. Because and in our eyes, the route we were on was fine. How many felt that way? Yeah, God, I know about him, but we're cool. If you died today, would you go to heaven? Yeah, I think so. Why? Not sure. There's a way that seems right to a man, but at the end leads to, to death. And Paul was on that route. And so now we see why God wanted to disrupt his life. The short story is that because we're sinners, we can't rescue ourselves. And apart from God, we find ourselves in dark places, don't we? We think we have control for a while, but then we tailspin. One event in life is enough to make us go into a tailspin. So God can't fulfill those plans without something else happening. The second thing Paul experienced was conversion. Say conversion. So a few verses later, the Bible says there was a disciple named Ananias who God spoke to in a vision. There's a whole lot of visions and things going on in these days. And so Ananias, uh, matter of fact, let's just read the, the Bible verse and then we'll get into this. So in chapter 9, verse 17, um, God uh, confronts Ananias. He tells him to go, but here's, here's what happens after that. Um, so Ananias departed and entered the house, 
And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Now, before this, God was already telling Saul, yo, there's this guy named, uh, he was telling Ananias, there's a guy named Saul. How many know the antennas already go up when you say that name? And so imagine Ananias hearing from God this vision, hey, I want you to go to this house on Straight Street. I didn't know in Bible times they had street names. Straight Street, Curve Street, Dirt Street, I don't know. And so he tells him, you're going to go to Straight Street, you're going to go into the house, uh, and you're going to look for this guy named Saul. And I can imagine his first question being, uh, God, Saul who? He's Saul of Tarsus. Okay. How many have ever tried to give God counsel? Okay, God, okay, here's the deal. Okay, you know that guy that you want me to reach? I have, I've heard some reports. He's, he's a bad dude. He's imprisoning. He's responsible for Stephen. You remember that? Yeah, in case you didn't know, he, yeah, he had him killed. And so now he's telling Ananias, you, you're going to go. And it says, in verse 17, Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, say immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. You see, because Paul went three days without eating or drinking. And I don't know if it's because that's how emotional it was or that's how impactful the, you know, or sensational the, the moment was when he had this encounter with this light and he heard Jesus' audible voice. God speaks to a lot of us. A lot of times it's not through an audible voice. So when you hear something and somebody says, Roland, Roland, and there's no one else around, and I'm going, hmm, right? And so, so I don't know. Maybe that's why he wasn't eating or drinking. But what I appreciate about this story, if you go back and actually read the part where God was speaking to Ananias, it said there was a disciple named Ananias. It doesn't say there was an apostle named Ananias. It doesn't say there was a pastor named Ananias. It doesn't say there was this great leader named Ananias. Ananias was a regular person. And so what I want to highlight there for all of us to encourage us, we're going to start getting to a lot of encouragement, and that's that you could be the next person to reach a Saul or a Paul or a whatever. And the other thing is this, that even though there are people who persecute you, anybody ever experienced any persecution as a Christian? When I first got saved, my friends were like, oh, man, I knew it would be you if anybody turned religious. It would have been you. And they gave me such a hard time. And then I would find myself looking for my friends. Hey, hey, where you guys at? Oh, uh, we're at uh, um, uh, Ernest's house. Oh, what are you guys doing? Oh, we just getting uh, get together. Uh, you know, I'm like, dude, nobody called me. There was a very clear distinction. I never gave up on my friends, but we were going two different ways, and they stopped calling me. So, what was I saying? Oh, persecution. Maybe you know a family member. Maybe you know a coworker. Maybe you know a a, a friend. I've had friends who still tell me, yeah, I don't know why, why you're doing what you're doing as a pastor. What made you do that? I have a friend who still tells me that. There's still time to change. I'm like, no, man, it's still time for you to change. <laughs> what I'm saying is that there's hope for anybody. Have you ever told somebody, oh, if God can change me, he can change anybody? Everybody ever said that? Okay, I might believe you. But if I'll say this, if God can change Saul, 
He can change anybody. Okay, so don't give up on that person that you're praying for. Don't give up on that family member that you've been praying for. Don't give up on that friend. Matter of fact, some of you might have kind of backed off a little. Reignite those prayers. Go back to God. When God puts it on your heart and you see the face or you see the name, I dare you to drop a prayer for that person. See what God does. So as soon as Saul could see physically and spiritually, he immediately wanted to be identified with the other followers of Christ. First, he's killing them. And now he wants to be one of them. How many know that's, a, that's pretty radical for a change? And so God's goal is not external reformation or, or behavioral management. Sometimes as Christians, we want to, you know, just do things right just enough where we don't push God away, right? But kind of close enough with that when we need him, you know, when we say that prayer, he's, you know, we're kind of close enough. And so we have this behavioral management. And so even that, we don't realize how, how inaccurate that is because we can't manipulate God. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more or less. No matter what you do today, good or bad, it doesn't change the way he feels. But somehow we feel like we can, you know, right? So, uh, and then another thing that's just coming to my mind is, um, now that I'm thinking about uh, Paul not eating or drinking for a time, you know, I think that there is something to be said about when we give our lives to Christ and we empty ourselves and we give up some of the things that we are so full of. Look at somebody say, you're full of it. Don't, don't, don't read any further into that, okay? I'm just saying, as an example. Okay, now you're going to remember this point because of that. But the point is sometimes we fill our lives with so many other things. And when we come to God, he goes, okay, that stuff needs to go. Anybody? ever had to do business with God. <laughs> I still have to do business with God, really, to be honest with you. It's a nonstop process. So radical change. God's goal is not external reformation. God's goal is spiritual transformation. God wants to touch your spirit because your spirit is connected to your soul and your mind that tells you what to do. And whatever you obey here happens as a behavior or your, your, your body responds. And, and so if God can change your spirit, your behavior changes automatically. There has to be no outside force. There has to be no, the more you experience God, the more this naturally happens. Spiritual transformation. The only way, if you're going to grow spiritually, the only way to know if you are grading, the only way to know that you're growing spiritually is to see change. Think about it. I don't know if there's any other way to, to check. There must be change. If you're not changing, it means you're not growing. If you were to see a child that stayed the size of a toddler for 10 years, something would tell you, okay, something may not be right here, right? And so as Christians, sometimes we don't grow spiritually, and it's been 10 years, right? And so I'm just saying, guys, God wants to see spiritual transformation. And we'll be able to tell um, by the way that we act. Now, I'm not saying to become like Mr. Rogers. You don't have to be like that dude, but I'm just saying. All right, so 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says this, that you are transformed from your spirit 
to your soul, to your body. We won't read it. You can write that down and look at yourself. But God changes your spirit and eventually your body and your actions will follow. So true Christianity means change. That word Christian, if you've ever felt uncomfortable, if everyone ever, te- uh, if anyone has ever teased you for being Christian, um, it's because that word was not a flattering word. The first time it was used, it was an insult. And the reason why is because they weren't identifying with the name Jesus. Jesus was a common name. Jesus wasn't the only Jesus back in his day. Matter of fact, when they said, oh, you know that guy Jesus, which one? That's like saying, you know, hey, yeah, you know Tom? Which Tom? Right? My neighbor Tom? I have a neighbor named Tom. Which Tom? And it's the same thing. They got in trouble because they were identifying with Christ, which means Messiah. And for a Jewish person to say, yes, that is the Messiah, that defines everything. And the whole entire nation is in a place right now where they're saying, no, that Jesus was not the Messiah. They are still waiting. They are still waiting because they think the Messiah is takes the form of something else or someone else. So that's what got them in trouble. So if you ever felt like Christian, that word Christian didn't fit and was uncomfortable, get used to it. It is. It was never meant to be a good word. It was meant to set you apart from the rest of the world, if that makes sense. Anybody encouraged by that? All right, okay, all right, cool, all right. So where was I? Uh, yeah, that's, you know, as we talk about Christianity, we're not talking about churchianity. Because you can come to church and not change. You can go to life group and not change. You can go to a prayer meeting and not change. If you're not changing, it's churchianity. Christianity means to latch on to something. And it means business. So, um, all right, let me jump back into the story. If you keep reading a couple of verses later, it says Saul spent some days with the disciples. Remember, this only happened over a few days. So now you got Saul, who's first wanting to kill everybody, and now he's going, uh, hey guys, you want to go to lunch? Somebody say, awkward. And imagine, he had nowhere else to go. He's wanting to learn. And he's sitting with these people. I can imagine the conversation. Yo, man, I was after you. Dude, are you, oh, you was going to die, bro. <laughs> yeah, man, matter of fact, matter of fact, you might want to hide right now because those guys are still out there. You see what I'm saying? Just weird. And here's, here's Paul now, <laughs> Saul, now in their midst. But 1 Timothy 1.13 says this. Even though I was once a blasphemer, this is Paul speaking. Later on, he's speaking to a young man who's rising up in the ministry. Uh, And this is what this letter was about. Verse 13 of uh, chapter 1. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, this is Paul speaking. He's telling on himself, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance, in unbelief. And then we jump over from verse 13 to verse 16. It says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example. Other translations say that God would use uh, my life as a pattern. As a pattern for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So Paul was saying that the work of God in his life was a pattern for us to follow. 
let me encourage you with something else. God is able to find people who aren't looking for him. You realize Paul was not looking for, or Saul, whoever you pick a name. He was not looking for God. And God disrupted his life. So the person who you think, they'll never come to church. They'll never get saved. I promise you, God has their number. God has their number. So here's the pattern that I kind of picked up on in chapter 9. We need to recognize the presence and the voice of Jesus. We need to be emptied of self so that God can fill us back up with his spirit. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's an important one. We need to identify with God and his people. We like to use the name God a lot because it's very general. Oh, I believe in God. I dare you to walk up to somebody and say, hey, I believe in Jesus. That changes everything, doesn't it? Like, hey, I love, you love God. I love God too. I love Jesus. People go, ooh, what? Oh, you're one of those, right? Identify with God and his people. We need to stop going undercover. The pattern was evident in Paul's life. It's a pattern for us to follow. So Saul's conversion reminds us that God is able to find people who aren't looking for him. Paul was not searching for God, right? Verse 20 of Acts chapter 9. We're coming uh, into our last point and into a close. Verse 20 says, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God, speaking of Paul. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this man the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The final thing that Paul or Saul experienced was a commission. After he had a collision with God, after he identified with him, after he submitted himself to him, there was one more thing. It was receiving a commission. If we're going to be followers of God, we also receive a commission. And it says he immediately, he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He carried Jesus with him. Jesus is meant to be carried. And so the question is, do we carry him with us wherever we go. Paul was proud to be called a Pharisee. For a Jew, a Pharisee was the ultimate title. It meant you were at the top of your game. It meant you knew the laws. It meant you obeyed all the rules. It meant you... And he says, that was me. I was the Pharisee. I was the chief of all sinners. Matter of fact, I wasn't just a Pharisee. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And God used all the experiences of Paul's life who grew up as a Roman citizen even though he was Jewish. So he had privileges a regular Jewish person didn't have. It allowed him to, to travel to places and be uh, allowed in because of his Roman citizenship. 
And so you can imagine him walking to a synagogue or a temple. And maybe they're looking at his clothes going, oh my gosh, this is a special speaker. Please come in. Do you have anything to say to us? And now Paul's going, yes, I'm glad you asked. His name is Jesus. He says immediately he began to proclaim. He received the commission and that's to preach and share and be a witness to what Jesus has done in his life. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to share your faith with somebody. You don't have to memorize everything. And I know some people get hung up on, well, I don't really understand. You don't have to. Let me just tell you what happened to me. We can figure that out later. A witness just simply says their experience. And if you have a story about how you came to God, you have a story to share with somebody else. You also have a commission. You also can proclaim Jesus and what he's done in your life. It was Paul who said that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. What's crazy to me about that verse in Corinthians is that Paul was living it before he even wrote it. The old Saul, Paul, whoever he was, was gone. And the new was here. And God used him mightily. The transformation, the change, it's a very real part of what Jesus wants to do in your life and in my life. And then verse 22 happens. When we do that, when we allow God to change us, we'll see strength and increase in our life as well. As we seek to serve the Lord, God brings more strengthening to us. Paul was just a brand new believer. If you were to study this, it really was just a matter of weeks before Paul was radically changed and began to preach the gospel and God began to use him. For us, that's hard to fathom because we want you to go get a, a sermon degree before you can get up here and preach. We want, oh, well, oh you want to be a pastor? Well, what, what seminary did you go to? Paul, in a matter of weeks, a brand new believer, and he turned the world upside down. And I believe that God can do the same with us. Why don't we close it up right there? Bow your heads and we're just going to pray. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Just take a moment, if you would. I'm just going to ask God to, Lord, I just pray your Holy Spirit just, just hovers in this place. And, you know, Paul thought he was right in everything that he did. And, you know, the Bible tells us very clearly to test ourselves, to check ourselves, to check our own hearts. And that's what I would ask you to do today because I know we're all in different places. Just ask God to reveal anything in your heart or in your life that might be displeasing to him. And the good news is he's ready and willing and waiting for us to come to him. When we're ready to surrender to him, he will gladly take that. So Lord, just search our hearts. Search our hearts on God.
God. We love you today. Father, I just pray for all those who are here. Father, for those who heard your word. Lord, I thank you that, Lord, your word is living and active. It's so sharp. It's so alive that it can divide soul and spirit, your Bible says. It can divide even physically, bone and marrow. And Lord, I pray today's word would just be alive in us. Lord, let it not just be a story about Paul and his run-in. May it not just be a story about his conversion, transformation. Not just his commission. Lord, I pray that would be our story today. With your eyes still closed, I always, always want to give an opportunity. Uh, so we'll just do this very quick. If you're here today and you're not uh, right with God, your heart is not right, maybe you knew him before, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard, <clears throat> and you want to get right with him today, um, we're going to all pray together, but I want to know who we're specifically praying for. If that's you, would you raise your hand? God bless you. Thank you. Anybody else? God bless you. Anybody else? Thank you, God. Can we all pray together with these two who raised their hands? Matter of fact, can we just stand together? And we'll close out. We're going to stand in faith with those who raised their hands. Would you just lift your voice and say, Jesus, thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you for your gift of life, your gift of love. Before you, I admit that I'm a sinner, but I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that you're the risen God, and I believe that your blood can cleanse me. So I ask you, cleanse me, forgive me, change me, come into my heart, come into my life, and help me to carry you I love you, in Jesus' name, amen. Can we just celebrate with those who raise their hand? All right, and I would love to meet you if, uh, for those who did raise your hand, if you, know, if you have a moment, I would love to meet you before we go out to all the good refreshments. God bless the, uh, those ministry workers who prepare and, just, and spoil us. Um, but Lord, bless this church. Lord, bless your people. Lord, keep us safe until we come back to our life groups or we come back here next week. And Lord, I pray that there would be others who join us in Jesus' name. Amen. We love you, church. God bless you.